0: Hi there, listeners. Just a reminder, all co-hosts of the arbitration station appear on it in their personal capacities. So please do not attribute statements to or take legal advice from what is said on this informal podcast. Thank you. Welcome to the arbitration station. I'm Joel Dahlquist.
1: And I'm Brian Koddick.
0: You have a microphone, which I just completely stopped using. And to be fair, it's from what, 2017 when we started this? So it's probably (laughs) like the the moon landing equipment at this point. It's completely (laughs) redundant.
1: I think you're right. I think technology has gotten way past this Yeti 1.0 microphone that we've been using. How are you, Brian? I'm good. We are entering into the Christmas season and we just noted that that doesn't usually mean anything for us lawyers, (laughs) but here we are. Uh, Yeah. We're wrapping up this season. This is the final episode of the season and we've had so many changes and adjustments to our cast and characters that uh, it'll be nice to wrap it up on a really high note
0: this time. Indeed. With one of the Titans of the field. Charles N. Brower. What's his title, Brian? Judge. Right. <laughs> Should it's we talk not, about that? It's not justice as you called him in initial correspondence. Not that I would necessarily know the difference, but now we both know. You know when you're addressing someone and it and you get
1: a panic of the title or even the gender of someone that your panic ends up taking over your logic? Yeah, <laughs> and I experience, know exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I was duly corrected and uh, happy to have,
0: yes, Judge Charles Brower. Exactly. The Honorable Judge Charles Brower, if we're doing it the whole way, who was maybe still is, right? a judge on the Iran United States Claims Tribunal. Yes. I think you mentioned that during the talk because the tribunal is still ongoing, He's been on that tribunal since 1983, but but as I think the vast, vast majority, probably all of our listeners would know, he's also one of the most frequently appointed arbitrators in investment arbitration, but he has an amazing career beyond that with decades uh, as a partner with White and Case um, and also working for the State Department uh, during some of the most interesting times during the Cold War as a legal advisor, among other things. Uh, He's been on the ICJ as ad hoc judge multiple times. Um, And he has written a book about this whole experience spanning from his law studies in the 1950s all the way through the reforms of investment arbitration and the geopolitical cases he's been working on today. Um, And we both read it and he graciously accepted our invitation to speak to us about it.
1: Yes, his book is called *Judging Iran: A Memoir of the Hague, the White House, and Life on the Front Line of International Justice*. So, anyone looking for a last-minute Christmas present for their loved ones, it it, it reads like a like a um episodic series a, dr- a dramatic series on hbo so it it spans beyond those interested in arbitration and he actually does a very good job breaking it down when he brings up some of our legal jargon it's probably for the anticipation that those that are not versed in international law yeah will be able that's, to understand.
0: that's very true the the target audience is arguably much broader than mm. nerdy international lawyers <laughs> because it's all as we said i mean it, it's it's a career that's been 50 plus years, 55 years, uh, at the front line of international law, a lot of things happening that go beyond uh, the minutiae of an arbitration hearing. Uh, Experience the Cold War uh, from a front seat, and some other things, including the very fraught relationship between the United States and Iran. Yes, and working with presidents that we all know very well, very closely. So that's all we're doing for this final one, right? We, it's, it's kind of hard to talk. I, we haven't even touched base, but I assume we won't be doing happy fun time because you can't really talk per hour with uh, a gossipy no. short <laughs> session afterwards.
1: No, this deserves its own segment, and it is equally happy as it is substantive. So we're happy to have this be our final send-off for the season.
0: Amen. Let's kick it off.
1: All right. Everyone enjoy their holidays, and we'll see you next time. Bye. We are joined by Judge Charles Brower. Judge Brower, thank you for joining us. How are you doing?
2: Just fine. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. We've asked you here today because you've published a memoir that's called Judging Iran. Um, it's come out. It's it actually it's come out a few months ago, if I'm not mistaken. Um, April 11. April 11. <laughs> there we go. And that actually leads me to my first question. Um, I noticed. So b- b- this is a memoir. We're going to talk about the book, but we're going to talk about kind of tease, tease out some of the the themes and arbitration that we've got in the book, because that's what the podcast is about. But to to. To go on your point of April 11th, I think the the first thing that jumped out at me, even in the forward, well, not the forward, but in in the first chapter was the level of detail that's included in this, not only dates, but epithets to every single individual that's named in the book. I think you even remembered the name of the porcupine of the University of Pennsylvania professor in (laughs) in Costa Rica, (laughs) Espanita. How how was that? And was it front of mind or did it take a lot of work kind of recalling all of these details?
2: Uh, well I've I've, uh, I, I've been asked whether I kept notes or, or or could I how could I possibly do this from memory. Um, it's all from memory. Um, wow. I need to refer to uh, uh, to any notes. Uh, I had a, a collaborator, of course, as uh, as a as book uh, indicates uh because when I started this I was already 85 years old and that's several years ago and I figured well you know okay I'm I'm healthy but you know how long do we know we're going to live I got to get started on this and I was still deep in in uh, finishing up uh, arbitrations uh so I went to Bob Barnett who was known the world around as being the go-to person at Williams and Connolly, a law firm here in Washington. And he mostly deals with former presidents and their spouses and Tony Blair and people like, uh, like that. Uh, but because one of his uh, partners had appeared before me in several cases and we got to be very friendly, um, I wound up being actually helped by Bob uh, Barnett to find a, a, a collaborator was someone who could help me and this was a, a scotsman who uh, had practiced at the bar in uh in London, but also uh, gotten an LLM from in international law from New York University's law school, and he was a great researcher too. So he could uh, uh, he could find a, a lot of details that I actually I never knew uh, that were oh, interesting re- related to uh, uh, you know he'd look up I'd mentioned someone and he'd look up and find there was an obituary and put in some more. You know some more facts that I hadn't known uh, myself, but the basic uh, thing is uh, my memory. My collaborator, uh, who had a, um, um, a um, just a really fine hand in writing uh, um, uh, as as well, was um, was given a lot of material in the beginning because back in my seventy fifth birthday. My former law clerk, several former law clerks of mine, uh, put together a, um, a book which was not circulated outside the family, but was uh, 232 pages along, largely about my uh, uh, career. Uh, and then the then um, chair of White and Case had um, offered me uh, unbidden. Uh, to um, spend several days being interviewed by uh, another writer that the firm used uh, from time to time. So for several days, I was just answering questions all day long. Oh, wow. super- uh, you know, from beginning of the career to, um, to uh, the pre- present day was uh, videotaped, transcribed, um, and uh, printed out. and so um, my uh, my collaborator had a, a lot of material. Um, and then of course, he spent some hours, you know, following up those, yeah, you know, well, I read this and what about that? and so on and so forth. So it came out, um, um, it's me, but I got good help. Uh, right. and, uh, but I worked entirely from my from my memory. And of course sometimes i'd ask myself afterwards oh my god gee whiz maybe i should have put this case in the in the book that suddenly came back to me right but i worked i basically laid out what i what i thought were the most important things uh, stages along the way and um and were the most memorable, and therefore, I guess, if they were most memorable to me, maybe they'd be most impressive to others. <laughs>
1: and they, they definitely were. And the book, so the book starts with and ends with CSS Alabama, um, and it kind of creates the theme for the book and develops this red thread, as they say in Swedish, for the kind of the arbitration being the centerpiece from the historical might makes right to now it being kind of the the option that is often considered as the better option for peace instead of the arbitration by the sword was that developed was was that theme developed initially or is that something that kind of naturally came through once you were developing through the history of your career well, I,
2: I think that naturally came through because to be at, at the beginning I I um said obviously uh um I had several purposes, and one was to be to be a uh, you know a wholehearted supporter of um, international arbitration as we've known it uh, over the years, and of course the Alabama is the uh, is, is the historical point of departure for for most people in this mm. field, um, and there have been other things before, but um, that that was really the yeah very and, uh, good.
1: So the thing, and I'll I'll ask one more question, then I'll hand it over to Joel. But the thing that I got, um, and that comes up a lot, is your passion. Um, you, you wrote, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life, right? That's the quote that comes out in the book. And my favorite stories are from the beginning, when you were your litigation, kind of sharpening your skills in litigation and in personal injury, and also the the Burrell case where you were trying to find your ways around sovereign immunity. I thought that was... Um, hysterical actually um and and very creative and so i and even what you did in costa rica with um making it uh transformed into unesco world heritage site before the i mean it was these tactics and it's clear that someone has a passion for it um (laughs) how do you do you think that uh and and you didn't always have right it was it started with you know your your focus on kind of being a diplomat or running for Senate, and then it turned into this, um, was this kind of an unearthed passion that, or was it just, or do you think it's just a a, a, qu- a patchwork quilt of all different types of passions that just happened to make its way happily into arbitration?
2: Well um I was always um, sort of a, an internationalist um as you mentioned I think I was I was actually going into the Foreign Service right. and by the time I finished college I was uh, passed all the tests and I had my number and then I went to Germany for a year on a Fulbright scholarship uh, and my eligibility to actually enter the Foreign Service uh, ended basically at the end of that year, uh, but I went on to law school, and why was that? Because my uh, one of the people to whom I, the uh, book is dedicated was my uh, graduate student supervisor in the uh, honors program in government, as we called it, political science in college. Um, and uh, he had been in the state department um, after he, he was a refugee from uh, pre-war from Russia refu- from uh, austria and he had been uh, gone back over there as an american soldier and then he was in the state department during the years when it was um joseph mccarthy was destroying the state department mm-hmm. f- until he f- basically got uh, thrown out the um and so i believed that he said you know go to it's not a secure uh, career he himself did go into the foreign service and he said i'm here to get a phd as a backup and i think anyone going into foreign service has to be uh, get a law degree or a phd well i wasn't exactly the, the the ivory tower type so <laughs> uh, <laughs> i wanted to operate um so that's why I did, and uh, then because I had uh, uh, was not um, not subject to the draft uh, because my age after um, I got out of law school, the um, I had this job at uh, White and Case in New York, and this is when I really realized, oh God, I love this l- l- law uh, business, and I was good at it. So, uh, I mean, for 10 years, years—not almost 10 years, I was in New York City. And since I did, I mean, I was practicing in New York City. And then I I, um, figured, well, no, I'm not going to do the foreign service. But now I can uh, get into politics in my home state of New Jersey, which was another interest of mine. And I actually started out that elective career, which was one of the, was elected to local office. And then Nixon was elected, and I went off. I resigned from White and Case four months after they had made me a partner to go off to the State Department, and um, that's when my, uh, that's when my 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 how should I say my my real career began.
0: Mm. You mentioned, and I think it's a recurring theme that at the time, international law as a as a career or even as an interest for a lawyer was almost frowned upon, especially in the context of of commercial. Law, commercial okay. lawyers didn't didn't really see international arbitration as a or international law even as as a realistic career alternative. From your vantage point, the the profession and the field of international law must have changed tremendously compared to when when you were fresh out of law school and pondering career options.
2: Right, that's true. Well, since I uh, had the idea maybe I would spend some time with a law firm before going into the foreign service, and then I, of course I changed my. Uh, my mind uh, about it. Um, as I said, uh, if I um, was presenting myself for um, um, interview by law firms, and I said, "Oh yes, I took uh, United Nations law with Louis Sohn at Harvard," and I uh, and I and I took this, and I took, I think, what kind of a weirdo is this? We need a guy who's, <laughs> who's done, done, done. Uh, you know evidence, antitrust law, securities law, all the bag of tools you need for, uh, you should have for a big firm uh, start. And um, so that's what I did. I had only taken one general survey course in international law and uh, one semester semester. S- seminar uh, in um, civil law uh, which stood me in good later but you know those weren't emphasized and i basically had all the all the tools it's a good thing i did too
0: mm-hmm. as
2: uh, getting back to your um I knew uh, I knew there was something called international arbitration and I knew that in part because White and Case actually had been selected back in the um, early 50s by uh, the firm then known as Arabian American Oil Company which was owned by four american oil companies and of course is now owned by the kingdom of saudi 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 arabia and uh, that was a famous case um and uh, we heard about it a bit in uh, when I was uh, in in law school too, so um, and I actually was put to work in New York occasionally to look up potential uh, arbitrators for when when another um, Aramco case was thought to be uh, going to happen, which uh, which it did not. But it's um, I always say sometimes there are advantages to be, be having to having been born in 1935, because age-wise, when I particularly, uh, after I had um, uh, been at the Iran United States Claims uh, Tribunal starting in 1983, and I resigned as a titular member, I still had a lot of duties. I've always been a member since 1983 in different capacities of the tribunal, Uh but that, um, then it was, you know, it was beginning to come along, international arbitration. And is basically a, a, a died in the wool trial lawyer in the criminal defense cases and all kinds of commercial cases. Um, having been in the State Department and uh, ending up for a number of months as acting legal advisor, of course, I had learned a lot more about international uh, law. And then being, um, eventually having been on the, uh, um uh, being known to be a judge of iran united states claims tribunal the combination of all these things was the timing was great you know ds was coming along and i could make something of it and it was um yeah it's uh, you know when when you're born can make a lot of difference to what you get involved in in, in the law <laughs>
0: But it also sounds like uh, you and some of your generational peers had to be pioneers in certain ways and, and grab whatever international work there was and to a certain extent also invent new work and <laughs> invent a field as you went along. Do you think if, if you today if you were a young lawyer today with all the specialized master programs and the many thousands of international arbitrations available, Would you have followed a a similar path today, or was it the case that the the challenge was part of it, that that it was unexplored territory to a certain extent was also part of the charm?
2: Well, I think uh, also the reason a number of professor friends of uh, mine um, in this country and um, also abroad, uh, particularly in the United Kingdom, have gotten very much involved in this because you're always on the front line there were always new issues uh, new issues and uh, tribunals didn't always agree on the uh, answers uh, uh, to the questions but it was it's exciting because you're 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 on the front line you're exploring you're, you're making um, and i have my um, my, my my son as you may know was a professor of international law in the united states at wayne state universities Um, law school. Uh, And this was a, um, I was, I'm one of the very few people who's in my field who hasn't, uh, who's practiced in the field and hasn't gone out teaching everybody in the Mm -hmm. field to teach. And I always said, no, I just want to take on all these uh, cases and uh, and create the stuff for you to teach. Uh, (laughs) That was my that, w- that was my uh, passion, but it would here it might take Michael Reisman, a good friend of mine at uh, Yale. He got very much into international arbitration. That's not uh, that's not how it started out for him, and there are uh, and there are many ma- many others. Um, today, however, it is. Um, uh, very hard to get into the field for young people because there are so many educated in it and there's so much demand for it for the same for the similar reasons. There are still always new issues coming up. Um, and it's very exciting. Uh, but it is um, um, it, it's it's not so easy to get into as a, as a start as a, as a starter. The field is very, very competitive. I run into this all the time with uh, you know, former law clerks of mine. Sometimes,
0: I think the, the former law clerks of yours is, is an interesting theme because, further to the many cases you worked on in different capacities, I think to many in the community, your your biggest legacy is is the many many young lawyers, many of whom are no longer young themselves. <laughs> that, that, that you have mentored in different capacities. I was actually surprised to learn from the book that David Karen was your first clerk at the Iran U.S. Claims Tribunal. True. For me, it's even, for someone of my generation, it's hard to even imagine that David Karen was himself. A young a, person. A junior lawyer, <laughs> yeah. At some time. Do you have any sense of how many people, either as law clerks or in various associate positions or otherwise, that you have sort of mentored? Do you, do you Keep in touch with them as a group. Yeah, I mean
2: it a, it's, it's to me it's like a you know an expanded family, um, and uh, you know some stay in touch more um, uh, than others for you know whatever reasons. But basically, um, you know after uh, after the height of COVID uh, a year ago, uh, a year ago uh, last October, um, I went to the Hague for a couple of weeks just for the uh but just just to see people uh <laughs> including a number of former uh uh law clerks uh who were there and also the judges with whom i had worked on both the uh, uh icj and at the uh, iran united states claims uh tribunal and last this summer the end last days of september and a couple of weeks in october i was in uh in london and i just had you know at the um Garrett clubs which I had access as a reciprocal member from the club I belong to uh, here we were 10 of us around the table all former law clerks uh such spouses as were available and it's um yeah and um I get consulted uh, a lot uh by them um Sometimes it's, uh, yeah, uh, well, been, it's been proposed to us to consider Smith or Jones or Brown or whoever to chair. What do you, what do you think, you know that person? What do you think about that person? Uh, up to, um, I had an inquiry the other day from uh, one of my former clerks, a very complicated issue uh, in an arbitration of uh, threats having been made uh by the respondent um to the uh, claimant represented by uh, uh by my former law clerk and um and you know and some are occasionally looking to change jobs um and yeah i'm sort of um that's a i mean it, one of the main reasons of uh, uh liking the idea of living forever which of course won't happen is um yeah just this great big family that uh, turns to you from time to time and and they're great now the in i think it's generally understood i think your question uh reflects that that they all all did great um mostly uh, in the law in one form there may be an, an international organization or with a national uh, government um, um, or teaching um tenured professors or one of them i mean one of them basically is now a. Uh, I mean one of them went on to become very wealthy uh, working in a hedge fund uh, after he went to stanford business school <laughs> following working with me um and um yeah and others If they're 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 really incredible and uh, and another one is uh, is a uh, senior vice president of Citibank, bank uh, doing really law but um you know governance and uh, sustainability and environment and these kinds of things that such organizations have to get involved in.
0: How, how did you approach working with them when you were working together, be it as the at the claims tribunal, when both you and your clerk were, I guess, employees, uh, or when you were sitting as an arbitrator uh, using someone that you employed yourself? What was your approach to working with assistants or clerks or junior lawyers, whatever you want to call them? Would you let them spar with you intellectually or do some drafting here and there or what was your your ideal setup yeah
2: well they would so there's sort of two categories when um, the uh, uh, law clerks working for me at the iran united states claims tribunal paid by the iran united states claims tribunal uh, would in uh, earlier years also um, work on my arbitrations just like and but but the same as a Law clerk, we'd just be working on uh, on this. And 2007 got to the point where that was no longer tenable. Uh, and I had to uh, hire on my own payroll uh, someone. And as long as I pretty much all the time that I was in the Hague, that person would also come to the Hague, uh, and I, I managed to uh, make it happen that that person could also have a room at the tribunal, so be very accessible uh, to me, and and vice versa. And from that time on until the end of of uh, two thousand two, I always had um, that job that job of being my, uh, just my law clerk on. Um, arbitrations that person couldn't work on uh on tribunal business because they weren't that wouldn't have been right um so eventually they were they came to Washington uh because I got involved with um uh, George Washington uh, University uh, uh, Law School, but I always thought I, I always said I've been teaching all my life ever since I was no longer a first year associate at White Case in New York and started, you know, working with uh, with younger uh, uh, people. I've always been teaching one on one or one on one on two, and it's uh, you know it's like a private. Uh, uh, a private seminar uh, as it works. And I think they all say that they re- they really learned a lot because I could take time to sit down with them. They draft something and then I go over and I, you know, sort of I'd mark it up and I sit down. and So now I've done this because I think it's better to do it this way or to say this or to, you know, just work on writing. Uh, with them to the extent uh, to the extent needed.
1: So let's. Uh, we we've dropped the name a few times. So the Iranian things general, and it is the name of the book. um I when you said oh, yes. there's
2: there, there's more, there's more, there's more on the title. That's it. It's right. cap, capital letters. It says judging Iran <laughs> because all the marketing people said. Uh, if you want this book to sell as well as it can, you got to get the name Iran up there in big letters because oh, really? <laughs> I do catch attention. But it goes on, obviously, space dash space and a memoir of the Hague, comma, the White House, uh, where I was uh, on leave from the Iran-United States Claims Tribunal uh, back in starting the beginning of 1987, uh, comma, and uh, life on the front line of International uh, uh, justice. I mean, that's that that's a more accurate uh, title in a sense. But Iran, yes, I've been involved a lot. Yeah, right. Iran on the ICJ on the international and on the, also when the obviously the Iran United States Claims Tribunal. And uh, before there was ever an Iran United States Claims Tribunal, when the hostages were seized, I was in court here in Washington d uh, D. C. On uh, on behalf of some clients who were had suffered in Iran.
1: Mm. When you started on the claims tribunal, you talk a lot about. Kind of the the constellation of judges that you sat with in your chamber and um and the constant fights you would have with with the other uh, iranian judges and sometimes also the third part the third country judges um was it it must have been frustrating that every case there was intense deliberation well, maybe not every case but a lot of cases there was intense deliberation and often insults thrown at you and and was it was it a frustrating process or was it kind of part of this challenge that we talked about that you found exhilarating? Uh,
2: You have to look at the different times over the uh, 40 years I've uh, been a member of the tribunal. In the early days, uh, of course, they were really revolutionaries. Um, They, uh, with the passage of time, and the uh, more experience that Iran had with the United uh, with the Iran United States Claims Tribunal, uh, the more how should I say, um, the more um, reasonable, not in deliberations but just in, in general relations, were mm-hmm. the ones who came to the uh, uh, tribunal. So um, I can't imagine you would ever have again, certainly not today, what happened on the 4th of September 1984, which was when two uh, then-Iranian judges uh, physically attacked the uh, then 69-year-old Swedish uh retired court of appeals judge uh, who was the head of five chambers and um eventually that resulted uh, in them uh, no longer being there and uh, you know more reasonable people uh, came there <laughs> I have to say, when I was um, uh, early on at my time in the tribunal, I was back in back in New York City uh, attending uh, some function of uh, of white and white in case. And one of the, a lot of people never understood, you know, why did you leave the firm? And of course, I kept coming back to the firm uh, uh, when that was uh, when I could do that. But in any event. Um, I remember one of the partners with whom I had worked uh, very early on said, uh, "You know, I mean, how can how could you give up the joys of litigating here in the Southern District of New York and the state courts here to be over there with those Iranian uh, revolutionary judges?" And I and I said to this person, "Every trick I learned as a street <laughs> litigator in New York City." is totally applicable in deliberations uh, at the tribunal, because with uh, one very unusual exception, I never, never, never—not from the start and not today—did any Iranian judge support any view other than the position of the Iranian government or the Iranian party, uh, and it just doesn't—you know—they can't. Uh, they'll be in trouble if they did, and they've all got families or relatives in the in um, in, in, um, in 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 Iran, and um, yeah, it was. Um, it takes all your all your talents to deal uh, with these people, and it's usually you know your. Sometimes, of course, uh, we uh, I, I would agree the the American claimant didn't have a case hmm. uh, for whatever reason. That was not very frequent, but it does happen. Um, so it's usually a fight between the Iranian colleague and uh, and me in those chamber cases back in the. Uh, Back in the 80s and uh, through the 90s, actually, um, that, uh, you know, for the heart and soul of the uh, European uh, chair, usually European chairman, not always, but of the chamber. Um, yeah, was a challenge.
0: Yeah, <laughs> sometimes that, that led to your writing dissenting opinions. There are oh, a few hey. well-known Brower dissents from from the iran <laughs> U.S. Claims <laughs> Tribunal, and that is something that you also write about in the book, also in the wider context of dispute resolution. I guess primarily uh, arbitration and investor-state arbitration, because it's of course a practice that you've kept up. Oh, yes, <laughs> and you explain in the book your your rationale for for occasionally having to dissent, but it's also clear, I think, between the lines that occasionally you you enjoy being. A dissenter would that be accurate that you, you you see the the appeal occasionally as well and putting pen to paper oh, and expressing the ways in which you disagree with the majority
2: if i thought that many uh, time i thought things were going in the in the wrong uh direction um that was uh it's not for the sake of dissenting uh but other people make make mistakes and of course uh, it wasn't you know if i wound up on the short end of a decision because the uh, uh, chairman of the chamber or in the state to state cases now where all nine of us are uh, uh, are sitting and that uh, therefore take forever the um, if i just think something's wrong i think it should be said and um uh, of course um, um Albert Jan Funderberg who doesn't believe anybody should ever dissent uh, in in an ISDS uh, uh, case I think I've, I've I think I've got him now in the latest thing that will be coming out. <laughs> well, I've I've uh, uh, together with uh, another. Um, Yeah, another uh, interesting young man who who, uh, has helped me out in specific cases. Um, There were in in writing, um, doing co-author articles. Uh, This has got to be coming out pretty soon. There is a book on the um, uh, co-edited book um, about the award, about the award and so um, i was shown a series of uh, topics and of course i chose the one about dissenting opinions and uh, the title of it thanks to my co-author actually <laughs> he invented it he said to uh, to err is human to dissent is divine <laughs> <laughs> and i'm um i just think that um and I think my reasoning is right obviously otherwise I wouldn't uh wouldn't do it and sometimes it's just concurring a dissenting uh, uh, uh opinion um but um, uh, people uh, and I I know uh Abergian at one point has said well r- very rarely is such a dissenting opinion inc- cited in another case well it does happen uh actually mm-hmm. maybe not. Uh, not a not a lot, um, but you have to um, you have to believe that uh, people do read them in uh, related cases that which they might be interested and in. maybe they're persuaded even if they don't uh, say uh, oh yeah thanks to Brower's opinion and such and such. So
1: I think uh, it dovetails nicely into kind of one of the call to actions you have at the end of the book about transparency and the um the kind of the importance not not in avoiding the creation of bad law but just the importance of transparency and the publication of awards and to establish at, l- at least some set of precedent that we can use um what and and you refer to bottenfall for example where they've they published it on youtube uh the entire hearing which is very interesting <laughs> yes. um do you I have think, a, any you think, thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I think mostly German government officials were watching, as I recall.
1: <laughs> yeah, all two hundred views that it's garnered in the past ten years. Uh, wait, so, I mean, you you've briefly touched on it, but is there? How do you see that? How do you see us kind of achieving that goal?
2: The the goal of oh of transparency. Of transparency. Well, I think it has been uh, increasingly achieved. Obviously uh some governments put uh, uh, including the united states put just about everything on a uh, on a website uh, and the canadian government i think is uh, well uh some some other kinds of governments don't r- really want their um uh, their uh, population to see what's going on or <laughs> why things happen the way they do uh, but that's just more and more. And I, I, I think that's fine because it, um, one of the great things, obviously, uh, the Iran United States Claims Tribunal, it was clear from the beginning that everything would, all the awards would be uh, published, plus a number of orders and so on. And they've got, I think, 40, 40 books on the shelf, or maybe the 40th is coming. I mean, it's uh, like a five five or six foot shelf of books of all the reports the iran united states claims tribunal uh which gets which gets cited a lot in in uh, non-tribunal cases in isds uh cases um yes and opening it up to uh actual hearings being uh opened up when people agree i mean that's um that's great uh, i just think it's 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 super. More and more is better.
1: Well, thank you, Judge Bauer, immensely for joining us and imparting. And it's a great teaser for the book. Uh, We really appreciate you.
2: Thank you very much for the opportunity. I appreciate it. And it's lovely.
0: Thank you so much.